0: Our scripture reading this morning comes from Luke, chapter 11, verses 14 through 28. Hear the word of our Lord. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebub, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he had trusted and divides his foil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through the waterless places seeking rest, and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed." But he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: And we'll return to Luke chapter 11 that we read with Becky just a few moments ago. If you're visiting, we have been for the last, I think now it's been 17 months, uh, we have been in a study in the gospel according to Luke. uh, And we've come to, maybe as you read this passage with Becky this morning, you thought, How unusual is that? Uh, It is quite a story, but it is one of my favorite episodes in the gospel. It is so powerful, and uh, I hope this morning when you leave that you have a new understanding or fresh understanding uh, of this particular event and this particular scene from the life of Jesus. Before we look at this passage, let's pray and ask Christ who is there, ask him to teach us in the power of his Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Our Father, all through this week, we have prayed for each other individually in our prayers. And this morning... We have the wonderful experience of praying with all our fellow priests at Christ Presbyterian. For we are a congregation of your priests. You have called us all not just to be prophets, bringing God's word to the world around us, but you called us to be priests, to bring the world around us to you. And Father, we bow before you right now and thank you. For how you have answered the prayers of your priests here at Christ Presbyterian, our Father, that we could not, we could spend the rest of the day, the rest of the week, writing and remembering the answers to prayers that you have given, that have been such a blessing. And so, once more this morning. We pray that you would bless Jim Bennington and give him strength for this time. Strengthen him physically. Strengthen him spiritually. We pray that you would bring healing to his body. We pray for Billy Griggs. We pray the same for him. That you would strengthen him and give him grace. Father, we pray for Priscilla Turner and Janet Sartell. We pray that you would take away the cancer. But we pray first and most of all that you would give them strength for these days. That they would look forward. And we would pray this for all of us. That we would learn to be a people looking forward with anticipation. That death would have no foothold in our lives or in this church. Because we have a place to go. We pray that you would give us a great vision of that place. Our Father, we thank you for your many, many blessings. We cause us, Father, to remember those blessings. To dwell on those blessings. To live, Father, in such a way that the world would look at us and say, The Lord must have had done great things for them, for indeed you have done great things for us. We pray that we would be filled, even in this fallen world, with that joy. With that thanksgiving. Our Father, in a few minutes, we will be eating physical food from these tables. But we pray right now in the midst of our worship that you would feed us spiritually from your word. John Sartell cannot make that happen. We bow before you and ask once more this morning that, You would speak to us. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Change us, Father, maybe some of us for the first time. And continue to change us in the very core of our being by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen. How can I live for Christ And still have the world's approval. The answer is simple. You can't. We can have the benediction and eat. But this passage is about that question. That's the question before the house this morning. And the answer is profound. And it's an answer that even most evangelical Christians do not understand. That's why this passage is so important. Just as a prelude to the message, this man was mute and blind. Now, most people that were blind or or mute or deaf, it wasn't because of the demonic in their lives. Some people look at this passage and say, well, that's just old fashioned. That's the way they they attributed it to the demonic. No, all through the Gospels, Jesus made blind people see, deaf people hear, mute people speak, and the demonic is not mentioned. It was, it was a pure physical malady that Jesus was healing. But in this specific case, somehow this man being mute and being blind was tied to the demonic. And this passage is about the demonic. Now with that prelude, I want to come immediately to the first point in this passage. How can I live for Christ and still have the world's approval? No matter what you do as a Christian, you cannot please those who oppose Christ. It's that simple. Look at verse 14. Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left the man who had been mute, spoke, and the crowd was amazed. But some of them said, by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. Sometimes we think, you know, if I could just live like Jesus, if I could just live a healing life, Like he did. If I could just love like he loves. Be as patient as he is. Be as compassionate as he is. Be as obedient as he is. I would win the world. The world would love me. No. I've thought that way. But here was Jesus healing and being loving and patient, compassionate, obedient. And the world was still finding severe fault with him. Some were saying that he was the devil. And the others were saying, hey, show us more sides." They had just seen remarkable things. They just wanted more. Jesus, as great as he was, could not please those who opposed him. Learn from that, Christian. He had just set a man free who had been cruelly bound by an evil force. The man had been unable to speak. He had been unable to see. Matthew was there, recorded the man was not only mute, but that he was also blind. So Jesus had delivered him from this awful demonic power. He could speak. He could see. Do you know? that? That's incredible. And yet, People looked at that. He does that by the, it's the devil's work. Now, most of us, most of us want people to like us. There's only a few warped souls who get up in the morning and go out into the world saying, I want to see how many people I can offend and persuade to not like me today. There are a few. I know them most of us deeply want to be liked by the world around us. Now that desire does not stop when we become Christians. And in fact, it's a good thing to want to be liked. However, when we become Christians, we have a new approach to everyday life. Before Christ We went out on Monday morning to spend our week saying, I want to please myself. I want to do what I want to do. I want to please myself. And I want the world around. I want to please the world around me. I want the world. I want to be popular in the world. But Christ comes and he changes that basic desire to where we walk out the door Monday morning and say, Christ, this week is yours. What would you have me do? What would you have me to do in school, on the athletic field? How would you want me to live? Christ, I want to follow you. This is important. There's a, a great change that takes place in motives between before Christ and after Christ. Before Christ we would strive to fulfill ourselves, to do what we wanted to do and to fulfill what the world wanted us to do, to conform, to be like the world around us. And then came Christ. On May, the, on May 2nd, 1962, a really unusual advertisement appeared in the San Francisco Examiner. It read, and I quote, I don't want my husband to die in the gas chamber for a crime he did not commit. I will therefore offer my services for 10 years as a cook, maid, or housekeeper to any leading attorney who will defend him and bring about his vindication. One of San Francisco's strongest attorneys, Vincent Hallinan read that ad and he contacted the woman who wrote it. Her name was Gladys Kidd. Her husband, Robert Lee Kidd was about to be tried for slaying an elderly antique dealer. Kidd's fingerprints had been found on the bloodstained ornate sword in the victim's shop. During the trial. Hallinan proved that the antique dealer had not been killed by that sword. He demonstrated how Kidd's fingerprints ended up on that sword. He had been in the shop earlier that week. And indeed, there was really no blood that was found on that sword. The jury found Kidd not guilty. Vincent Hallinan refused Gladys Kidd's offer Of 10 years of servitude. He said no. They were free. But stop and think for a minute. Would she have gladly spent that time in service for what he did? Yes, she would have. Would would Gladys or her husband have done anything for this? Yes. Why? Because he had set them free. Because he had done this great work. See, it goes all the way back to the garden. God said, don't do this. Do these things and don't do this. And Adam and Eve said, no, we want to do this. We want to be our own people. We want to do what we want to do. And that's what Christ does. He brings us back to that. We come back to, Father, what would you have? What did we say in our study in the Lord's Prayer? Your kingdom come, your will be done. It's a confession. Daily confession and every prayer, Father, we want to do your will, not our will. We're about your will. However, living that life will not please the world. You think about all that Christ did. And the world crucified him. You can build hospitals for Christ. You can build schools for Christ. You can deliver meals for Christ. You can build a home for abandoned children. And the world still will find fault. But it's not what drives us. The world's approval is not the driving factor in our lives. No matter what you do as a Christian, you cannot please those opposed to Christ. Secondly, the world will strive to reverse the theological and moral compass of the Christian. The world around you will try to reshape the way you think. Look in verse 15. But some of them said, By Beelzebub, the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. Here was the Messiah, the Son of God. He had healed men, women, and children. He had raised the dead. He had brought relief to to widows and orphans. And his critics said, "Ah, oh, we got it. He couldn't do these things unless he was from Satan. Beelzebub its an interesting name. In first century Israel, it would, had become another name. In Jesus' day, it was another name for Satan. In old Canaan, the word Beelzebul, a different word, Similar word, Bezebul meant Baal the prince. Baal was a pagan god. And Bezebul meant Baal the prince. But the Old Testament prophets, the Old Testament writers, began to write the name instead of Bezebul, they wrote Beelzebul to denigrate the name of Baal. Baalzebub meant Prince of Flies, Lord of the Flies. That's where William Golding got the title. Flies gather around waste, human excrement, rotting flesh. So they were calling Baal the Lord of the Flies. It was a term denoting unmitigated contempt and derision. Now the Pharisees were saying this about Jesus. He's human waste. He's Beelzebub. Talking about an upside down theology. They were calling the Messiah, Satan. That happened all through scripture. It happens. It's happened in every society. Isaiah said it this way. It's on your scripture sheet. Isaiah Isaiah 520. Woe to those who call evil good, that's what they were doing, and call good evil, that's what they were doing. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. What's he saying? He said the, the world tries to turn the moral compass of Scripture, the spiritual compass of Scripture, the theological compass of Scripture, upside down. The whole weight of Scripture says what? That Jesus is the Son of God. He's the incarnate son of God. That's what the incarnation is. He was God in flesh. You've heard me talk about my own seminary education. I was surrounded by men. It was a very liberal, theologically liberal school, postgraduate school. And here were these brilliant men, erudite, educated in universities from all over the world. And what did they tell me? No, he he was not the son of God. God doesn't become flesh. He he did not do those things. His death on the cross was not an atoning death. It's not only a theological compass that they were turning upside down. It's a moral compass. If If I stand in this pulpit and I read a portion of scripture that says that homosexuality is a sin. I'm an anathema out in the world. I'm called a homophobic. I'm told that this is a healthy, God-given lifestyle. If I read scripture that calls abortion a sin, I'm automatically thought as one who wants to enslave women. If I go with Jesus into a group of young singles that their favorite bar. And speak about the sacredness of the sexual relationship between a man and a woman. Reserved for marriage. I will be called an anachronism. A relic that belongs in a museum. People, this is where our culture is. And to understand this passage, we must take off our rose-colored glasses about our culture. Do you know who Dr. Peter Singer is? In 1999, he became the Ira W. DeCamp Professor of Bioethics at the University Center for Human Values at Princeton University. Listen to what Peter Unger, a distinguished professor of philosophy at New York University, wrote about Peter Singer. This world-renowned Australian may well be the most prominent professor His country ever produced. In many measures, he is the single most influential ethicist alive. I could give other accolades that the world has delivered about him, but now let's go to what he writes and what he believes. In an article entitled, Killing Babies Isn't Always Wrong, philosopher Peter Singer writes, Perhaps, like the ancient Greeks, we should have a ceremony a month after birth at which the infant is admitted to community. Before that time, infants would not be recognized as having the same right to life as older people. This is morally acceptable, Singer says, because newborns, while indisputably human, are not really persons. They don't become persons and acquire a right to life until weeks or even months after birth. They lack self-awareness. What do you say to Peter Singer? Well, what do you do with these babies who are a month old and you've decided that they're not really persons? You see, it's not limited to the womb anymore this is one of the leading scholars, recognized scholars in ethics in our country. He also writes that the great apes should be granted personhood. This is the world in which we live. This is our culture. No matter what you do as a Christian, you cannot please this world. The world will always strive to reverse the theological and moral compass of the Christian. It's the nature of the world. Thirdly, we see in this passage that wherever the kingdom goes, it must oppose. Wherever the kingdom of God goes, it must oppose the evil and relieve the suffering caused by the evil. Look at verse 20. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. The kingdom of God is synonymous with pushing back the darkness, pushing back the results of the fall. If you had been there, if you'd been standing there and you saw this man somehow associated with the, 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 the demonic and he could not speak and he was blind and here was Jesus a few feet away, what would you have known? If you'd been Peter and John had been standing there and you said, hey, John. I'll bet you 10 bucks he's going to heal him. You think John would have taken the bet? There's no way John was going to take that bet. John would have said, Peter, we both know if we can go find, you know, let's go find another sucker. and Maybe we can make 20 bucks. But what did you know? You knew Jesus was going to heal him. Because every time you had seen Jesus encounter the results of the fall in the darkness, he had pushed it back. The great temptation for us as Christians is to excuse ourselves from this. To say there's so much evil, there's so much suffering in this fallen world. What difference can I make? What difference does it make? Jesus, look at this. Jesus did not just come, live on a mountaintop as a great guru and just make this awesome proclamation in the world. Everybody's healed. He didn't do that. He walked through the dirt and the grime in which we live. And he he healed one person at a time. He encountered the darkness. For that time, for that place, he pushed it back. That's that's, That's what we're called to do. We want to excuse ourselves. The world is unaffected by what I do. I, I can't make any difference in this world. It, it, any good I do, it's going to go unnoticed. Now listen. This is what most evangelical Christians don't understand. We are not rescuing. We're not restoring. We're not redeeming to win the world. We're here. Let's go out and win the world. That's not our motive. Our motive is we are rescuing, restoring, and redeeming because Christ is in us. And we cannot do otherwise. Why did Jesus heal this man? Was he trying to win the world? No. It was the nature of Jesus to see the darkness and hate it and push it back. That's the reason we act. If our motive is to win the world, every with, with every defeat, every time we get hit hard, we're going to say it's no use. Why did Jesus push back against the darkness? Why did he heal? Why did he do these things, one person at a time? Why? Because of who he was, he could not do otherwise. Young people, listen to me. The next time you have a professor in college or a teacher in high school or whatever, or the world around you rails against Christianity, ask them what single institution in the world in the last 2,000 years has built more hospitals, built more schools, more homes for abandoned children and fed more homeless people. What? Group has done this. What institution has done this more than the kingdom of God and the church of Jesus Christ? A friend who works in the inner city, in a major city, he's been there for decades. And so I think it's just incredibly hard. And most people burn out only after a few years. And he has stayed and stayed and stayed. And if you ask him, How do you do this? How do you you go to work in the inner city with all the poverty and all the crime and all the drugs? How do you do this every day? And he'll tell you. Every time I try to leave, every time I try to leave, I, I meet a strange man on a cross between two thieves and he won't let me leave. Wherever the kingdom goes, it must oppose the evil and relieve the suffering. Because of who we are. Fourthly, Christ will not lose in his war with evil. Look at verse 21. Strange. When a strong man fully armed guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man. Trusted and divides the spoils. What's the picture? Satan is a strong man guarding his possessions. The world is his. It's fallen. It's his. He's fully armed. Christ has invaded and he's a someone who's stronger in verse 22. He said in John 12, 31, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. Christ was saying the kingdom has come. It's a reality, and I'm driving out the prince of the world. I'm driving him from the hearts of men. I'm driving him from the great cities. I'm driving him from the nooks and crannies of the world. People, that's what Jesus has been doing for the last 2,000 years. And Satan has opposed him at every step. But think about that motley crew there in Jerusalem. They weren't politically powerful. They didn't have money. They didn't have positions. You wouldn't have bet a dime that these men would conquer the Roman Empire, but they did. Listen to me. Young person, listen to me. The church of Jesus Christ in the last 2,000 years has gone to the ends of the earth. In the last century, in the 20th century, there was, there was Marx, there was Stalin, there was Hitler, there was Mao Zedong. These men combined, I mean, these men combined, killed hundreds of millions of people. And yet they could not stop the church of Jesus Christ. The church grew and flourished in their nations even while they reigned in evil. What was it John said? In 1 John 4, 4, you dear children are from God. And have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one in the world. Jesus is not going to win it, and it's not going to lose this battle. He's just not. No matter what you as a Christian do, you cannot please those who oppose Christ. The world will strive to reverse the theological and moral compass of the Christian. Don't be naive. But wherever the kingdom goes, it must oppose the evil and relieve the suffering caused by the evil. And Christ will not lose his war with evil. That's the point. And finally, there is no neutrality. Either Jesus or evil is at the center. Those are the only two choices. Look at verse 23. Who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters. When an evil spirit comes out of a man, It goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. And then it goes out and finds seven other demons more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there. And the final condition of the man is worse than the first. It's not hard to understand. Jesus is saying, you must choose. You You can't be on both sides. Jesus was saying when, when evil is thrown out of your life, you must either put God or Christ in its place or the evil is going to come back. There is no, no vacuum. You may try to morally reform. This is what the world does. The world says this is the Nicodemus way. Oh, I'm going to be, I'm going to, to be morally reformed. And, 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 and you, you, you kick the, the evil out. Only to be filled with arrogance and pride and self-righteousness. Jesus. Jesus said that even the prostitute and the thieves were going to the kingdom of heaven ahead of people. Like Pharisees. Who had this horrible Christ refusing self-righteousness in their souls. Young man had gone to college. He loved his new life there. He was away from home. And he was living fast and he was living free. He decorated his dorm room with pictures that were consistent with the life that he was living, anyone would have called them pornographic. He had even tried to justify the existence of these pictures by displaying pictures and portraits of intellectuals and philosophers who advocated his lifestyle. Somehow, his mother discovered how her son had decorated his dorm room. And by the way, mothers always discover that. But she said nothing. She wrote nothing. After several months, she sent him a powerful, powerful painting of Christ dying on the cross. It was beautiful. After a time, she received a letter. He thanked her for the picture. He said, I hung that picture of Christ on my wall. And he said, I either had to take it down or had to take down all the other pictures. I couldn't keep both pictures on my wall. People, that's what Christ was saying. The walls of our hearts are going to be decorated with pictures of self-reliance, pride, self-centeredness, materialism, living for money, living for sex, living to be popular. Either those pictures are going to be on the wall in your heart. There's going to be a picture of a crucified Christ in an empty tomb. There's no vacuum. If you're sitting there this morning and you're saying, well, I'll make that decision. I've graduated from college. You've already made the decision. I can tell you what the pictures in your heart are. You're either going to walk out this door this morning. With Christ on the inside, or self centered evil on the inside. There's no vacuum.